Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. On today's show, I'm joined once again by Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Hello. It's my Fraser impression. We also welcome Gaslamp Games technical director, Nicholas Vining. Hi there. So tonight, we're going to be talking about the new Nobunaga's Ambition from Koei. And this is an update, a, a refresh of a beloved strategy franchise, and... You know, if you were a if you were a Super Nintendo gamer like me uh, for for a number of years, uh, Koei's a, a name that looms fairly large because they were one of the few developers that were sort of offering real strategy games uh, for for consoles that you could play. But Nobunaga's Ambition is a series that I never really uh, never really got to experience. Uh, my big Koei games actually were Aerobiz and. Uh, I think it was Liberty or Death, which was a bizarrely mm-hmm. comprehensive American Revolutionary War game, and I think, in my memory at least, in my memory at least, still stands fairly tall as one of the better treatments of that war. Um, Troy and Nicholas, I-, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the you- your histories w- with Koei games, and uh, w- which and whether or not you have any particular favorites among them. So I have this uh, this disease where I can't actually play games that normal people play. It's a genetic condition, I'm afraid. Uh, people, well, I tried, well, I tried boy, play, are you, boy, are you on the right show? Yeah, I know. I tried playing Call of Duty once. I got this rash just all over my chest and these blotches. It was just, it was just awful. I had to get a special cream for it. But that means I play things like Dwarf Fortress, and I play things like Paradox titles, and anything where you can move a grain silo, and uh, anything, anything odd seems to be what really appeals to me as, as a gamer. And uh, Koei games are definitely odd. They're sort of... Um, they're their own weird magical thing. It's sort of like Koei's kind of, I guess, the paradox of Japan. They have some of the same sort of uh, historical... Um, sort of tar- making games that target people who have interests in that weird intersection of... Uh, history nerd and strategy game nerd, um, but with their own kind of twist on the things. So I haven't pl- I haven't played any of the Nobunaga's Ambition games before uh, Sphere of Influence, which I only actually started playing because you guys invited me on this podcast. Most of my time so far has been spent with uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is their line of um, Chinese feudal warlord simulators, basically. Um, and those are... They're, delightful and unique because you know what what game can you go and you can move instantly from being wandering ronin to competing in a poetry competition to elaborate tactical battles other than well romance of the three kingdoms and maybe the new dwarf fortress patch i think might let you do some of that in adventure mode but it's all it all comes out of the same sort of uh completely bonkers school of simulation um and I and I just I just love that kind of a thing. Um, I used to work with a guy at my first job uh, in 2000 uh, named Joe Valenzuela, who I believe is now working for Insomniac. And his joke was always, um, "Koei would release a new game, shit in a box," and he'd be like, "Oh God, I must play it." And then a year later, they come out, "Shit in a box two, Cow Cow's Revenge," and he'd be like, "Yes, give me ten <laughs> copies." And that's basically how they they keep going. Is I mean, Romance of the Three Kingdoms is now up to something like uh, I don't know, it's like 17 titles in this. Series. It's gone on for a long time, and they're all different. Um, and there's spin-off stuff. I mean, there's Dynasty Warriors, which I never really got into, um, and 
a variety of exciting titles. And now, yes, Nobunaga seems to be the the other big one, I guess. Fun fact, little little trivia for you. When I was very young, I was really confused because Romance of the Three Kingdoms, there were two questions I had about it. Uh, first of all, I didn't understand how three kingdoms could, could fall in love. Uh, well, but... when one kingdom loves another kingdom very much, you get certain urges in the peasantry. And then it starts building a, a large tower. Um, no, I, but, I don't know. Can we talk about this in this podcast? I don't know. For no, no, not, not without an, not without an explicit tag. Uh, my ah, other bit well. of confusion was that I was convinced that there had to have been previous games because I, I was convinced that the Three Kingdoms denoted some kind of sequel and series. Uh, so those were <laughs> this was a series that always confused <laughs> me uh, when when I was young and I never knew quite what was going on there. Uh, Troy, what about you? What about you and uh, Koei Games? I discovered them relatively late, but mostly through, you know, catching up through... I didn't discover them at the time, but I discovered them, you know, later on, doing my research, catching up, doing the history. As I started reviewing strategy games, I need to know the background, so I do my research, and I go find this stuff. And yeah, it was the stuff like uh, Lampereur. It was things like uh, Liberty or Death, which was, like you said, it's amazingly deep and sophisticated, almost cabinet management and war management type games. I mean, they're all quite different from each other. I mean, you have the Liberty or Death and you have the Lemperer and you have Genghis Khan, which are kind of like, you know, war games, a few generals, you move your things around. And then you have the more character-centered ones like Nobunaga's Ambition and Romance of the Three Kingdoms that really get into kind of traditional understandings of these periods and the personalities and the avatars these characters have represented through Japanese and Chinese literature. I mean, like, we have... It was like if we were to do a game about um, the Trojan War, we have expectations of what an Achilles would be, or what an Agamemnon would be. This is kind of what Nobunaga's ambition and Romance of the Three Kingdoms are. They're character-centered, and each of the characters is representative of the virtues and vices of these historical people as translated through historical epics and historical poems and all of these other things, not intended to be really, that's why it's romance of the three kingdoms, but the novels, the three great, the great epic of Chinese history, the romance of the three kingdoms, that I could never get through. I've tried so many times to get through this. Well, it's, it's huge. Because it is it's, 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 it's absolutely bloody enormous. It's huge, and it's tough. And there's kind of this assumption that I'm reading them, coming to a cultural understanding of who these people might be, and I just can't plug into that. The games, however, help quite a bit. The games are really about these, they're, they're numbers, but they come at you, especially in Romance of the Three Kingdoms, they have attitude and they have personality and you have to seduce them. And, you know, some are debaters and some are organizers and some are, you know, traitors. And Nobunaga's ambition, you know, has, you know, Nobunaga kind of as, if not the great villain, it's kind of the great thing you're fighting against. He's the ambitious guy. You can play as him, you know, but it's kind of like, you know, playing as Napoleon. You know, you want to stop Napoleon. You don't want to stop Nobunaga. You want to be the Shogun type thing because of who Nobunaga is. You guys, I mean, Troy, you're, the company you're working for does actually sell games where you play as Napoleon. I mean, I think that it really depends yes, what kind of historical of course, nerd you are. And I, th- I think that, you know, the, but I think, you know, calling Koi the, the, the par- these games, you know, the paradox of their time, there's something... There's something to that. We can touch on that in a bit. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, we have these games are kind of the ones that Koei's probably best known in the strategy sphere. We have, we have Dynasty Warriors, which is really this weird 
action arcade type game, but again, with all of these historical characters from Romance of the Three Kingdoms, it's and they've tried to do other ones along that. But they have all these other strategy games. Well, they had like war games, they had naval ops games, of course, Aerobiz, you know, these, these little business sims, they had a few of those through the years. But it's these, uh, I think, I'm about for me, they're, they're the company that made you know, Liberty or Death, that made Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and made these historical epics before these character-centered historical epics before other strategy games really plugging into that before we had a crusader kings we had it's true actually it's probably more accurate to say paradox is the uh paradox is really the koi of the west i guess yeah because they've been doing i mean they've been doing nobunaga since 1986 and these these were console games i mean you you look at the old console for the first romance of the three kingdoms game it's like oh this is in television type graphics i mean this is so basic looking um but again, there's quite a bit of depth to them, and they keep adding to them, and they're very different from each other. And I was, you know, kind of thrilled to see, you know, a new Nobunaga's Ambition game because it is the first it's, it's a type of history that we don't play a lot. They're really, these aren't games; these aren't stories that we we visit in the West generally. These are histor- histories that are, you know, distant from us. If we're playing a game about Asia, it's about, you know, the exploitation of Asia. It's about the Pacific War. Um, maybe it's a city builder or something, or maybe it's the the, 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 the shogunate. I mean, they, we have shogun total war, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, that really get into this. And yeah, we did our own little Sengoku thing. But, you know, Romans of the Three Kingdoms, Nobunaga's Mission, these are deep series that have been pushing these things forever. And it's great to see a new one arrive on Steam. Now, it's two years old, but it arrived on Steam this year, so we're talking about it now. Yeah, we do have the Shogun Total War series, and I think one of the things that's interesting about Nobunaga's ambition, and, boy, you know, it, it isn't, boy, now, now I, I kind of do want to research a bunch of Koei games, because now that I think about it, they, they are all different. And I didn't remember they'd made a Pacific War game until you mentioned it, but I, I do have vivid memories now. Of like ordering like fleet reconnaissance and like trying to scout out like enemy carrier groups, and it, yeah, a, a really difficult studio to 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 pin down. Really, really diverse designs and and, and ambitious too. I mean, if you look at, again, you go back to those early titles. You know, you took one of the two great works of Chinese literature, with the other one being, of course, Journey to the West. The first game they shoved it on a Nintendo, and the result is basically incomprehensible because you take. You know, you can't fit that much literature in one Nintendo without it exploding, and you're that child who's 10 years old, and you get this, and you can't make heads or tails of it, and you, you cry till you get ducktails or something. Um, and, and they kept doing this by, by, any, by any sort of rational, normal standards for what we expect out of the game industry. These shouldn't really exist. That's kind of the magic. Yeah, and like again, I think back to Liberty or Death, and I still can't believe it existed, and certainly not on the Super Nintendo, uh, because you know, you're, you on, especially on those old consoles, and still to this day, you have to fight a great deal of interface convention to make a strategy game really work uh, through through console inputs, and so. You know, the the Revolutionary War is a difficult war for, for any developer to tackle because it is this really, it's this kind of war with all, all these different issues intersecting, right? There's there's sort of the hearts and minds issue that, that both sides have to wage. Uh, there's the fact that the colonial United States, the, the, the colonies are enormous uh, given the technology level at the time. And the war has all these weird little fronts and all these little armies, you know, moving around. And somehow this game on Super Nintendo 
brings that stuff to life. Uh, the stuff you read about in books like The Glorious Cause and, and stuff like that. It brings that to life better than... <laughs> it, it, I think it still stands among the best games uh, made about the Revolutionary War. So, like, th these are incredibly ambitious games, and, and they do all sort of adopt... Uh, it's sort of a different tone, a different approach, uh, depending on the subject matter, which is which is really cool. It's, it, it is important to uh, to adapt design to to the topic, and I think with Nobunaga's ambition, uh, certainly in in the, this current one, uh, Sphere of Influence, you're having there, there's a conscious effort now to sort of bring to life not just the era because that's what that's what shogun uh, total war does right like that's always been mm -hmm. about bringing together the the battle scenes in in, in ron really the battle scenes in ron and kagamusha yeah. and, and things like that but it, it's always allowed itself to be a little bit fuzzy on the historical details because you just sort of pick a clan and yeah, certain territories yeah, are renowned just for... get on with the stabbing and, you right. know... Yeah, exactly. And, like, with the exception of some bonuses, one clan is is not that different from another, and the personalities don't necessarily necessarily matter uh, all that much. But Nobunaga, Nobunaga's ambition, there's a real effort not just to create a strategy game about, uh, the, the, uh, about the Sengoku period, but also to capture the, the, the mythos that, that Troy was referring to, that, you know, you're going to have the strategy game playing out, but don't you also want to see, like, these these legends sort of step onto the stage as they are imagined to be? And, and Nobunaga is a, a perfect example, because I think even in, in every case I've come across him in, like, in, in like Japanese, like, culture and pop culture... Uh, the treatments of him vary so wildly. There's the, there's this weird like fascination and revulsion uh, and admiration uh, toward Nobunaga Oda uh, that that's really unique. I, I think uh, you know among sort of characters from from Japanese history, uh, he is at once sort of a at times a demonic figure, uh, diabolical, uh, also at times you know the honorable and forward thinking revolutionary. And uh, this game sort of tries to bring a lot of those traditions uh, to life and sort of synthesize them into this uh, sort of this sort of great man narrative yeah he has he's, he's either a sorcerer or a saint you know in and often leaning towards you know this mysterious malevolent figure who in a lot of the, sometimes they'll get very positive portrayals a lot of the ones are he's this mysterious odd figure he's you know somewhat mystical um in a lot of the literature um and especially and you look at some of the manga that have come out about him some of the 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 the, the taiga literature the taiga well, plays the uh, oni uh, series and, on playstation is literally about oda bringing a demon army to life to try to conquer japan well there you go i mean that's kind of a big part of this is like a, a he is, I mean, to call him Napoleon, I think, is not a far, not a bad stretch to call him the Napoleon of Japan, someone who's equally admired for his skill and kind of feared it. So, like, is he in league with the devil? What is making him so successful? And to try to capture that in a game, which, you know, you kind of have to have a character-centered game, which Nobunaga's Exhibition tries to be. And we can talk about how successful it is um, at, you know, translating that. And I think it is successful in some ways and not in others. But I think it's really the only way to capture this literary aspect of history, this literary portrayal, um, which I think is kind. Of, I think it's kind of important for us to understand this. Uh, I think it says it speaks a lot about our understanding of you know Japanese culture and Japanese strategy games in general. Um, this sort of 
individual-centered focus. I mean, even Liberty or Death. I mean, you look at Liberty or Death, the game isn't just about winning the Revolutionary War, because you start the game and you pick a commander-in-chief, and it's about staying commander-in-chief. So you've got to keep civilian support and political support and also win the war at the same time. And that's, you know, for Ousted's commander-in-chief, your game's over. You know, when you get to see the end of the war. You know, you pick George Washington to start or Charles Lee or whomever, and, you know, you've got to be that person, but also satisfy, you know, all of these different competing interests, and many of which are tied to these personalities, which, you know, I know very well, because the revolutionary period, I know that like the back of my hand. Sengoku Japan, a lot of these names, no idea. Uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, you know, I end up going through the index and trying to figure out, oh, this is, this is, this is a really giant bad guy, or this guy's got a really good axe. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that simple. Right. I mean, yeah, I I'm, I'm know a certain amount about Chinese, uh, about Chinese history. I know very little about Japanese history. So for me, it's very hard to, I don't necessarily understand all the context. One thing I'm sort of wondering, again, just reading about this, um, is whether or not this idea of, of Nobunaga as a, a dark sorcerer or a demon, I mean, he was... He was very much a revolutionary in the time when you were sort of seeing, as I understand it, the collapse of the, the samurai class and uh, moving away from samurai rule and also the introduction of firearms from Portugal. I mean, those were, those were sort of the two major themes surrounding all of that. And of course, you'd see the man who pushed that as a sorcerer. Yeah, and, and I think certainly like... It's in. I think it, the the figures he's probably closest to, right? Like he he's sort of the type of character that Machiavelli describes in The Prince, right? The sort of like protean change. Well, I think this is one reason why uh, he he's he's difficult to pin down, right? Is because one of the things that like, Machiavelli writes about is that like you know the the good prince, the wise prince, has to appear to be many different things to many different people, and I think there was that changeability. Uh, that that makes him him kind of an odd figure because ultimately I think the the unifying theme of of his sort of career uh, seems to have been he would sort of do whatever it took uh, to win uh, and and if that meant importing ideas from 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 abroad uh, if that meant breaking traditional alliances and and forging new ones uh, he was going to do whatever it took because he was a he was a practitioner of realpolitik in an era when everyone he's competing with is still basically trying to play the game according to the rules of like traditional dynastic and clan loyalties and, and force the, you know, to sort of play the game within that framework. And Nobunaga shows up and it's like, you yeah, I don't really care about those old affiliations. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to do absolutely whatever it takes. And, and certainly that's, that's a, a, a sort of how the game gets you warmed up is that the the early stages of his career, it's very clever. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about tutorials in this game. I think what's cool about Nobunaga's ambition, Sphere of Influence, is that there is a lot to take in with this game, and there's several different levels at which it operates. And a tutorial, in the traditional sense, would be a miserable, gut-wrenching slog. And, and actually, some of the earlier scenarios do toe the line with this a little bit. But yes. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But they do try to, as as they tell you the story of the the rise of uh, the Oda clan and then the the rise of Nobunaga himself, 
they are also teaching you first the basics of clan management and then sort of inter-clan relationships and then like larger armies operating at a macro level. And so each stage of the campaign, as you become more powerful and the story unfolds, it's also introducing new new game concepts uh, very organically. Uh, so so perhaps too slowly, but it's very clever to to have the you know the rise to power accompanied by instructions in uh, the ever greater levels of macro management you'll have to do in this game. Right. What's what's something we see all the time in RTS campaigns, right? I mean, RTS campaigns are always uh, you know very often just tutorials. So you, each mission teaches you a brand new thing. They get more complicated. And yeah, you can do the stuff in the skirmish with the tutorial, but generally the campaigns are about, oh, here's this neat new trick, we're exposing you to a new weapon, et cetera, et cetera. It's not something you see a lot in strategy games, generally because the campaigns and strategy games aren't, you know, story-based. They aren't mission-based. Um, so it's not something you see a lot of. So I did like seeing it here. And even when if you don't start playing the uh, Nobunaga, even if you start playing with the minor clans, they, you know, say, hey, you know, here's a, here's a mission for you. It's a pseudo-historical mission you can do uh, if you want to, and we'll teach you how to do it, and we'll show you. And it's much better than the belabored, forever, stupid, annoying tutorial they start you with if you press tutorial. Don't do that, people. Well, Don't let's go also, let's thing, also but... mention briefly here, for the benefit of the viewers, that yeah. if you actually play the tutorial that they start trying to... That's actually labeled the tutorial. Your tutorial advisor will attempt to commit seppuku oh, so good. a lot. It's so good. I mean, that's yes. just the best thing to put in a tutorial is the suicidal advice. And, and it's all kinds uh, of laughs. Like you have to oh, yes. don't let grandpa oh, yes. get his sword because he's gonna try to. Yep, there he goes. He's trying to commit no, seppuku. No, no, no! Stop it. Teach me about provinces. Teach me oh, about right, farms. Well, I need to do yeah, farms yeah. now. It's such a weird that the tutorials. It goes on forever. Uh, yeah. The official tutorial, but the in campaign instruction and menus are actually really well done, considering how complicated this game is. And it does get very complicated very quickly. It's easy to get overwhelmed by what I'm supposed to be doing next. But I think the contextual information is quite well done. Mm. Yes. And that's hard to do really well. I mean, who else has done it that well? I think it's a very short list. Yeah, contextual information is, is a constant problem. Like, this is one of the reasons that, like, uh, you know, complaining about user interface is kind of a theme on the show because like it's very difficult to with this with a strategy interface you don't want to overwhelm the player with too much information that you don't need to be seeing right now but at the same time like god help you if i want to know something and i can't immediately find it with like a quick gesture Right. And I, I, again, working on a strategy game right now, the one thing that we're learning over here as a studio is people don't read text. And I know we say that as developers. We go, oh, well, well they'll read our text. No, they just, they just don't. Is that, in, is that extended tooltips? <laughs> uh, this is in tooltips. This is in tutorials. I mean, we have really? people who will, you know, a user will immediately turn the tutorial off and then... Uh, complain about not being able to do anything, or they will just blindly oh, click God. through the tutorial and then complain about not being able to do anything. And by virtue, I think, of having the having the contextual content just sort of be just right and also not giving you the opportunity to really turn that off and having it just introduced at the right pace, they get away with actually making sure that when, it, when you are actually seeing it, it's there for you. It sort of makes sure that 
it's showing you the thing when you actually want it, not necessarily before or after. So it's really, it sort of becomes more of a, a helper rather than a tutorial, if that makes sense. And I think, I, th I thought that was just very well done. So the other developers, especially, you know, with intensely complex games with lots of moving parts should pay attention to. The modern thing seems to be, oh, we'll just shove it on on a wiki and let somebody Google it, uh, which I think is Minecraft's fault, really. But um, Yeah, I really hope we're not in a race to the bottom when it comes to games instruction where, like, oh, manuals were too hard, tooltips will solve the problem, and then, oh, tooltips, are, those, are, those are too difficult. What's the, what's the next thing? Because at a certain point, that does begin to really impinge on your ability to to do things that are different. Yeah, I mean, I would argue with Minecraft that the Minecraft wikis are an integral part of the Minecraft experience. I mean, literally part of the gameplay is going off and looking in your browser while you figure out how to do the next thing. And that's, I don't know if that's brilliant or if it's, if it, if it's bonkers, but it's nice to see somebody who actually has this other thing where you have a really complicated game and information is presented to you in the right way and it just works. And, and, you know, small miracles. I did want to ask, uh, because so much of this game does unfold uh, with sort of a narrative bent to it, uh, I feel like this is going to be divisive. I feel like this is going to be one of the more divisive aspects of this game. Because I think, again, if you're coming to this from more of a, uh, like, Western strategy tradition, uh, they tend to be very, uh, you know, very straight-laced, very serious, very, very serious on their surface. Like, yes, there's there's the wackiness of of paradox like games in their in in terms of their little story events and things like that. But like, your minute to minute, minute presentation is, is pretty sober and, and and a little bit like down to business. Here, this never really lets you forget that you're playing, uh, you know, a a a work that a game that's borrowing from like. Uh, JRPG uh, aesthetics in, in certain ways, and so like all the characters are like these dreamboat samurai. Uh, don't don't break <laughs> don't break your heart and start wikiing any of these dudes. By the way, because let me tell you, oh. Nobunaga's ambition, Sphere of Influence, gave several of these guys a significant visual upgrade. <laughs> yeah, they're all just covered uh, in hair and, and sweat and, and and various skin diseases. Um, so, for the benefit of the uh, the viewers back home, it should, we should actually talk a little bit about how the gameplay actually yeah. unfolds before we get too much into this, because you've got the two phases, which I liked. And the first phase is your, I think they call it your council phase. And what you do is you set up all the things that are going to happen in the next active phase. And then there's a sort of a, a time elapsed period which ticks through the month and you watch the things that you just sort of punched into it unfold and your military campaigns actually happen and you could fight things and so on and so forth and then it ticks back into the council phase where the game pauses and you could make those decisions again and you have various members of your um I, what would you what would you actually call it? Court. Yeah, your court. Yeah. Your court. Um, you could have your your advisors who will give you advice on things, and you can send them off to do things. And what it really actually reminded me of that that council mode is King of Dragon Pass. I can't think. Of, I mean, that was sort of immediately where I was where my was going in terms of you have this sort of set number of infrastructure upgrades you can do, and then time advances, and you have the advisors who tell you things. Yeah, it has. I, I like that. I mean, that the. I mean, and it's, there's an order. It's an order phase and an action phase. Probably the best way to, to put it. You you give your orders, and then the things happen. And some things take more than one act, more than one action phase. I'll take. It's like 
doing something in like building a building in the total yeah. war games that'll take you two turns three turns if you're trying to seduce a neighboring samurai to betray his master and join you that can take a while and you only have a limited number of advisors and it's all about action points because some things will take two action points and how much labor do you have to spend on things so you have all of these you can't do everything you want to do uh it's about spending your points and spending your actions and seeing what happens and then you recruit your armies and you send them out in the field and the longer in the field the more money that costs you and can you if you expanded your big your empire your your farmland and merchants big enough uh, all of these things are going on it's all of these trade-offs like it wouldn't any good strategy game um and it's you can speed it up you can slow it down you can watch the things happen you can intervene in the battles if you want to or you can just watch them play out you can give them the orders and just watch it happen uh without intervening um but it's kind of fun to watch them like not intervene, but just watch and see them use their special powers, even though you're not telling them to. That's always kind of fun. Oh, I don't need to tell them to charge. They already know how to charge. Yeah, this is great. And yet that that action phase, I mean, sort of your, it has that also like that steady drip of just like keeping things rolling on all of your all of your cities and castles, uh, which is which is very nice. And then you sort of the fundamental. Um, rock, paper, scissors of the game is, of course, development, where you get to choose... You choose one of only three things. That's sort of the... How am I fundamentally going to try to push my city forward this turn? Is do I want more rice? Do I want more money? And do I want... Or do I want more soldiers? Pick one. And it's a, it's a, it's a ternary choice. You choose one of three to focus on. You can't say, well, I'd like a little bit of both, please. And so that's, that's a very simple choice with huge ramifications but it's sort of the core of the of the loop well and then each of those cities can be either min-maxed or uh, turned into sort of jack of all trades in certain right. ways by developing districts in certain ways where what with each sort of basic basically population tier of a of a city you go in and you can sort of build a new district of the city, and it can be uh, agriculture focused. The, the same, that that's the same trinity, basically. You know, agriculture, um, crafts, or uh, military. Except then there's certain specializations within those, and then there's adjacency bonuses they can get depending on the districts that are nearby. And so there turns into a, a little mini game that you play there of like, you know, do you want one really super powerful like military headquarters? Uh, that's going to crank out like the largest, best army you can. But the downside of that is it's going to contribute absolutely nothing to you know your your food reserves or your uh, or your bank. And right. so you can fe- you can deploy a huge army. Whether or not you can feed it and keep it in the field, that's a separate issue that you'll have to solve using other settlements. So there's there there, there are some interesting management things uh, going on here. But the other part of Nobunaga's ambition is ultimately it also wants to take those decisions away from you. It wants like there, you can get to this really granular level where you're deciding what, what am I going to upgrade? How am I going to upgrade each city this turn? But then not too far into the game, it starts being like, well, you know, maybe you should just automate most of this, which is merciful because a lot of this, a lot of this is actually really boring and repetitive. Like if you were doing it for each settlement, you'd lose your mind. But 
that pattern repeats a few times as you know the game first wants you to automate a few things and then later it basically wants you to turn over like sections of your empire uh, over to AI AI management AI, AI managers and like sort of subsidiary clans right well I mean at the heart of it I mean what what is a city building strategy game a city building strategy game I think is based on this idea that human beings kind of like to solve certain sorts of optimization problems for fun, right? And it starts you doing the small optimization problems, which is, you know, one city developing. And then you then it switches it up as you get into sort of the long game, where now you're solving bigger optimization problems by optimizing people that optimize the small ones for you. So you're still always optimizing. I mean, that's the core of any any strategy game. It's just that it's the scale at which you do it changes as the campaign grows, which is very neat. And that's sort of, I mean, that's sort of maybe what differentiates Nobunaga from Romance of the Three Kingdoms, if we want to talk about that for a bit. Um, in that Romance of the Three Kingdoms, there's ne their games never really have that sense of campaign and scale. It's more just like, do some China fighting or don't. You know, you can, you can, you can play a historical character, and that historical character may or may not be appointed to courts given duties and so on and so forth. But you're basically, it's a sandbox. This is much more campaign-focused, where the, the design of the campaign has a very strong beginning game and a middle game and an end game. Um, or at least that's what, that was my experience playing with it. I mean, feel free to disagree. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely think that... Um... You know, I, I, where I would disagree with that is I, I think we, we, we don't want to short sell the degree to which this is also a, um, you know, a, a military campaign and logistics game. Oh, logistics. Oh, oh, oh chills. Everybody yeah. on the podcast moaned sensually. Oh, yeah. God. Oh. Uh, no, because one of the other interesting things happening here is that you can control a lot of territory. And that will allow you to field larger armies and, and stuff like that. But I don't know what it's simulating. Maybe if you want to abstract it, you can call it like they're trying to get command and control issues or, or something. But basically, there's certain things that only a single large army can do. And you're, because it's a feudal system, each settlement produces armies under separate commanders. And the size of that army is sort of tied to the settlement. Uh, and so there's there's kind of a weird thing where like there's there's a utility there's 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 a real important importance for having a couple like super armies that have tons of troops because only those armies have their act together enough to successfully siege down uh, like really advanced and heavily defended settlements. So if you have like you know twenty thousand guys, but in one instance, that 20,000 guys is separated uh, into like 10 separate like ten separate armies versus having that separated into three separate armies. That, those, that the trio of armies that, that separate, that's separated, that's far more useful and powerful than the same number of people uh, spread across the, right. these different armies, which leads to some really interesting uh, – like campaign calculations that you have to make when it comes to like engaging enemy units, uh, you know, march order, and then ultimately like sieging down enemy strongholds. 
Right. So that's sort of an, an atypical design decision for a strategy game, where you have units that deliberately don't stack. Yeah. And, so, and I, I think it turned out to be a really smart one, but I'm, I'm curious what you guys uh, what you guys made of it. I mean, the first time that I, when you're told, oh, sorry, you don't have enough people to siege this castle. It's like, well, where, <laughs> you go, what? So, like, so, what? I mean, because I, I, you have to have enough to surround it. You've got to be enough. It may, like, there could be like only five guys left in that castle, but hey, five guys, they can eat food forever, right? So you have to surround the castle, cut everything off, and if you don't have enough men, they're just going to sit there and say, we don't have enough men and they're, until you get more soldiers up there, which can take quite a bit of time because you have to you know, invest in that in your castle. And do you have a general to lead them or are all your generals in the field? Do you have enough got, enough samurai to control your armies if not you're just wasting your time which is another one of the big efficiencies of having you know fewer fewer big armies instead of you know lots of small ones that they have to be led uh by a leader um this isn't an option this isn't an optional thing really uh so the, the character choice and character options limit what you can do and it's a really nice you know i like being told in a game you think you can do that, but nope, you're wrong. And they have a good reason for me being wrong. When I'm told that it's, when it's a stupid reason, yeah, I hate the game. It's just some arbitrary choice. But if it is, like you say, Rob, a good logistical thing that actually makes sense, and not just logical sense, but in-game sense, then it's like, huh, okay, this changes how I play the game. This sets my priorities. I mean, it's, it's a signal you get early enough in the game that you're not going to be, like, wasting you know 10 hours playing it and then be screwed it's a lesson you'll learn relatively early um it can still crop up in some odd situations like you said when you meet a really big super castle because somebody's invested because somebody's discovered really big stone walls um just something else you can build for your castle it takes quite a bit of time to build them but it's actually you might want to have your stronghold just be nothing but you know fort knox um because it does require your enemy to spend more manpower and more time and they have to probably be more diplomatic towards you so this logistical problem that nobunaga's ambition gives you uh affects your strategy all the way through the game um it does force you to reconsider your approaches and reconsider who your next target is it makes espionage important you have to look at your enemy castles uh and make you don't just look at the next neighbor over you know is there is there a revolt is it easier to get some guy to revolt and open the gates for you uh, you end up using that sort of stuff a lot more than you would in say a total war game where you also have you know espionage options and can they open the gates for you and that's all well and good but if you're good enough at the armies you don't need to waste your time moving these stupid little spies around uh, right. It's a lot easier in this game to do espionage, and its effects can sometimes, certainly not always, uh, because of the weird character stuff going on sometimes, it can be a very profitable and very useful way to think of the game. You know, I'm I'm finding one of those things where I'm starting to warm up to this game more as we talk about it. Uh, even though, like, I had some, well, I've got I had some pretty... so many, I've got so many issues with this game. But really... <laughs> yes, well, but but talking about the 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 requirement to have commanders and everything, this this ties us into let, let's call it the last like major pillar of, of the game, as it were, which is you need to have these these courts, uh, as we discussed earlier. But as your empire grows larger. You need more and more like nobles and characters to sort of fill out your ranks 
and play important roles and command castles and lead armies and do administrative tasks uh, for the clan and do diplomacy. And so the larger your, your interests get, the more people you need. But the more people you need, the more you start having to rely on people of either questionable ability or questionable loyalty. And so your, 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 your tightly knit clan, uh, you know, a little, little like family unit that you start with, slowly starts to bring in more turncoats, more just raw recruits. And you discover some of these people, you know, have a very, uh, they, they require a lot of, um, a lot of soothing. They're, they're very high maintenance uh, to keep them on side. And you don't, and, and I'm, I'm ambivalent on this point. You know when their loyalty is getting shaky. Like you have perfect information as to who is really trustworthy and who is not. And from there, it's actually a pretty simple matter to sort of regain their loyalty. Like if things are going pretty well, it, it, it's, it doesn't take much to, 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 to win someone over or cut them loose with like no consequences. You can be like, just get out. You're done. You're fired. And you can, you can do that. Uh, but it does require a lot of maintenance. It does require a lot of like going into your, your ledger basically and like sorting these jerks by loyalty and then sort of cross indexing like, okay, is this guy worth keeping or should I punt him? Uh, but nevertheless, it does, it, it does tie in pretty well to this idea of the more powerful you get, uh, the more your middle managers may become a problem. Yeah, and that's one of my big issues uh, with the game is how it does require so much attention uh, to play it well. And the more attention you play, the less interesting all of these great dynamics become, like the loyalty stuff, Um, which I think is kind of too bad because it's one of the great things about, you know, one of the great things about history are, you know, I I've been I've been listening to the new musical Hamilton a lot and tweeting about it a lot. So I'm sorry, my Twitter followers, that I'm in love with this musical. Uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda's new musical about Alexander Hamilton, and it you know one of the themes is you know what makes a hero and what makes a villain in America. I mean, who 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 are the traitors? You know, what's what do we mean? Why does Alexander? What makes you know Aaron Burr such such a jerk? You know, why do we just curse his name and all of this? And is it fair and all of and nonsense. And, you know, character-based games like uh, Nobunaga's Ambition, like uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, like Crusader Kings, you know, a character-based game that has room for treachery has to have room for these sorts of stories. Yeah. These, there has to be room for the villain where, oh, you know, you got me, you little rascal, and I've got to give you your just desserts. And if you don't have room for that, if there's a possibility of treachery, but the treachery never happens because you have all this perfect information, then in many ways you're losing the power that that story gives you within the game. And if you have a character-based game where the character traits matter, those character traits have to be not something you can just, that you could easily shepherd and you only screw up because you just stop paying attention because, oh my God, I'm so tired of looking at opening menus which is kind of the thing. And so I think this is kind of one of my issues with the character management in this game is that yeah, if, you're, if you have all the time in the world and you want to be perfect at it, you can be perfect at it. You can have you know, the best samurais and it'll take you money and it'll take you time. But you know, you're, you're not going to have the, the amazing you know, event that is completely unexpected. Now, 
To be fair, our game Crusader Kings has a little bit of that too. But, yeah, you know, join we the club. We're we are, we are none of us are without sin in this regard. So out of the three of us, I think. But you know, but we have that. But you know, there are, but there are, there are other pressures going on because we have because you because you can't just get rid of your vassals <laughs> in, in Crusader Kings or in other games. In this game, you have pretty much perfect control. You know, there aren't characters aren't loyal to each other. The romance of the three kingdoms has a little bit more complexity in this regard because the characters do have relationships with each other in ways that they really don't in this beyond are my loyal to my daimyo or not. Right. And even then, I mean loyalty loyalty is just sort of one number, right? Is you 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 know, am I am I how loyal is this person? Well at seventy five loyalty. And there's there's not much um it's it's doesn't have much nuance let's put it that way um now i'm going to go i'm going to go on the defensive here uh, i'm going to say that i mean if you you could remove a lot of that sort of what is at first glance seemingly unnecessary micromanagement and you could make the information less perfect those are sort of the two things that you could do to to deal with the complaints. The problem with making the information less perfect is that then you get a frustrated player. And because they, a thing happens, the information is not presented to them so that they understand why that thing happened, and then they get frustrated and quit. Um, the other option, of course, is just simplify the game. And I think would argue very strongly that if you did that, then what happens is you you lose the you lose the weirdness and magic that makes it a, a, a koi game or whatever. This is why you bought the damn thing in the first place. You know, it's, it's you didn't want to play Shogun Total War where you don't have this sort of thing. You wanted to play this. Um, so you get to, you know, you get to take your lumps with it. You go into it knowing that it's going to have all these characters of all these needs and things and they're going to be simulated. And you're probably going to spend a lot of time doing bureaucratic paperwork. Uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms games are exactly the same way. You better spend time, you know, visiting your visiting your fellow um your fellow soldiers and, and heroes and so forth and drinking tea and hunting stags and everything else you do on a pretty good Saturday night. Um, but that's part of the what you go in and expecting, right? And that's, you know, that's... that's. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm fine with, you know, the micromanagement and that sort of thing. If the micromanagement is... I guess it comes down to the better the micromanagement is, the better I am at the game... The fewer surprises there are, the less interesting it becomes. Right. So here, the micromanagement, and this is maybe unique to certain sorts of micromanaging games. The micromanagement is not about the 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 gameplay loop as much as it's about the flavor. The micromanagement is necessary to give it that flavor. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of games that have a lot of flavor because of the micromanagement. Dwarf Fortress is a great example of this, of course. Uh, Koei stuff. Um, uh, King of Dragon Pass again. Even our even our humble little offering of Clockwork Empires. All of these things have um, you know this this notion that you have these things that you can manage it, but because there that detail is in the simulation, uh, regardless of whether you micromanage it or not, it adds to the richness the richness of the experience. And even the the micromanagement itself, the act of micromanaging, is not to make you a better game player or to advance the game. It's to give you a little more of that flavor. So it's not a purely it's not a purely logistics exercise, and there are moments when that flavor um, 
is really delicious and 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 yes. umami. You know, like yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's that. Yeah, the umami of the umami of yeah. games. There you go. Because uh, I definitely like did have like w- there are moments when this all comes together, and it's great. Like I had a campaign rollout where there was a really difficult uh, castle I was trying to take, and I'd already had a failed campaign to seize it uh, like a couple years earlier. But this time I'd gone on a full like uh, espionage offensive to sniff out like who the weak links were in that clan, and I managed to get a couple of their their uh, generals to be disloyal, and I couldn't I couldn't get them to turn coat. But what I could get them to do was agree that they would not get in my way, which was awesome because then, like, the war starts and the AI sends this, you know, big old army out and the, the, the army starts to maneuver in a position. And then, as we agreed, that character who's commanding this army of, like, 6,000 men is like, uh, okay, you've got 60 days. After 60 days, I will do my job and I will fight you. But for these two months, I'm sitting on my hands, and that army moves out of the way, and then that clan is screwed, you know. And it's it's really cool, and it's 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 the, just the kind of thing that we get from like the lore and the history of the Sengoku Sengoku period, right? It's it's like it's it's full of of these. I, Nobunaga himself, I think, w- was killed by uh, you know a couple of his. Not even, not even like his his top, not even his his top personnel, but I, some I form say of was... highly artful Japanese treachery. I think um, I've got the Wikipedia article open up here, and I'm reading the description of what happened to Nobunaga, and I can't make heads or tails of it. No, he was, just, he was just passing through his own territory, and he was staying the night at uh, I want to say it was like a second tier nobles. Uh, castle, and he'd walked into a trap. And it's, sort and, of a t- it's, it's a temple, apparently. It's a temple. And then they set it on fire, so he decided to kill himself in one of the inner rooms because well, I guess that's just what, that's you what you did do. if you're trapped that in a burning is, that, temple that in Sekakuera, Japan. But, but yeah, so I mean, it, it was just, it, it was really cool that like I was able to like, oh, this this entire war plan that this this enemy clan had was just undone because, uh, you know, Yoshimoto was unhappy <laughs> at work and I exploited it, uh, and he got really passive aggressive and I seized your castle and that was really really cool and it kind of made up for all that time you're spending just sort of like checking boxes and like saying. Okay, is this guy? Can I can I recruit this guy? No. Okay, fine. How's this guy doing on loyalty? Okay, I better give him a present. There's a lot of gift yeah. shopping there in is. this. It's like, it it's like the holiday season never ends. Yeah. Now, did you ever? Sc- but did any of those Bosworth field moments happen to happen to you? Did you ever have a general just this, sit back? Because this you is can, something I wanted to ask you guys. Do you feel like the AI is playing the game? Ah. This was my, this was my objection. Yeah. This was one of my big objections to this game is that. I very much felt like I was the prime mover in the game, and by and large, I was dealing with some pretty passive opposition, and an opposition that was not using uh, the full arsenal of tools uh, that were available. Yes, I'd, I would agree with that statement. I think, yeah. I didn't really... There was There was never a sense that I was being threatened in these shall we say, more intricate and complicated ways, uh, which is odd, actually, because I know that that has happened in uh, 
Romance of the Three Kingdoms games is I have been in a situation where, you know, my one of my generals is visited by some other general or is awarded a prize in the imperial court or wins a tea, uh, poetry competition or something. And now I have this other, this new consequence I have to deal with where I've been, you know, bribed or killing of bribery or whatever. I didn't have that in, in Nobunaga. And I don't know if that's just because I, it just didn't happen or if it just isn't there. I'm not sure. But you never really do feel like you're, um, you feel like you're playing with a larger deck than everybody else. Um, and honestly, AI programming in building an AI that could use that toolkit effectively and also still have the game be fun because it's not doing it perfectly is really, 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 really hard. Um, making like making an AI that is ruthless and evil and will play a perfect game of anything is is um, <clears throat> it's a doable thing. Uh, unless you you do something like Dominion's Four, where the amount of choice presented to the AI is just just a huge probability space, and you're doomed because you you can't really rely on sort of fixed sets of strategies there. Um, here, I mean, sort of, you could you could conceivably have an AI that would play a perfect diplomatic game as well as a tactical game, um, but I don't know if it would be fun. Yeah, I'm not interested in perfection. I'm interested in the game that at least evidence that the game is doing something, that it is playing by, that it knows the rules and mm-hmm. it can play by the rules. Let's say play them perfectly. There's all kinds of ways to, you know, give it, give it, you know, fewer, give it different bonuses, give it delays, you know, reduce it. There are right. all kinds of things you can do to make an AI imperfect. Right. But if the AI is, if I can do things the AI, the AI hasn't thought of, then it feels like I'm playing a, not a game about how wonderful and mystical and mysterious and deep this strategic situation is. I'm playing a game where I am the only protagonist that matters, or I am... The question is, can I screw up? Not can the AI beat me? Yeah, uh, and and I had... Like, I had glimmers of, like, the AI clearly does do some of the things that yeah. you do. Like, I... like. I was losing, like, I had guys poached from me, certainly. I had people poached from my court, mm-hmm. but there were always characters that their loyalty was so shaky anyway that it would have been, you know, I mean, it would have been like one action to get them to, to, to cross over. It, it was it was, it was was really trivial. Uh, what I didn't have was, yeah, that, that Bosworth Field moment. I, di- I didn't have, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't have that moment where it's like the rug got yanked out from under me. And, and that extended to, I think, the diplomatic level, where I, I definitely didn't feel like um, I felt like it was very easy to game the AI. Like I didn't feel like I was getting a ton of uh, coalitions or, or alliances to 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 balance to balanced against me. Right. Uh, I always felt like it was pretty straightforward for me to like. Okay, I want to make friends with this person now because this clan is my next target. And oh, they don't trust me. Well. Time for another antique tea set. Yeah, uh, things like that, and so it becomes very, uh, uh, you know, very, very, mecha- very, very mechanical, uh, right, and very, very, very deterministic, right. And that made it uh, a lot less interesting because I, I think the the military system is really interesting. The fact that like these wars do take a lot of planning is cool, but the fact that the context for them doesn't get that much in, that much more interesting uh, by virtue of the AI's, I, I think, shakiness on long-term planning uh, ultimately started to make that game feel a little bit hollow, uh, despite the, the you know, moment-to-moment pleasures of it. 
Right. As, as, as soon as you said long-term planning, I mean, that's, I agree that's exactly, uh, I think from a technical perspective, at least what it is. I mean, if the, as you said, if the game, it seems like if the game spots that, well, I ha it has an antique tea set and you have a shaky general, well, whoop, off you go. Um, but it doesn't seem to do the long-term planning of like, I'm going to wage a war of attrition on your causes by doing this long-term work to get this one guy to open the gates for me. It doesn't quite do that. And the other issue there, of course, is as a player, if you have perfect information, and again, the theme of the game is, perf the name of the game for an open arc at least is you have perfect information. If, the, if you were always learning that the AI was busy bribing your, you know, one of your, one of your men to leave the gates open, and you knew that once his loyalty hit 20, then that was it. Because it's, it's, there, there's never a, the unit has some chance of defecting in battle. It's, the unit will defect in battle. It's very binary, if memory serves. Um, would you then, would that just be like one more plate to juggle? Would you just give him one of your T sets? Or would you, would, <clears throat> I don't know. It's, it's complicated. It's very, very complicated. Um, if you can see what the AI is doing and you can push back against it, um, would that actually add to the experience? I don't know. Or would it just come across as a different kind of hollow? These are, these are, these are complicated AI problems. These are, you know. Oh man, I'm so glad I'm not a developer though. Cause I just get to sit here and just complain about it. And like, this sucks. This game would be better if only it did this. And then I just sort of, you know, put my feet up, lean back in my chair and uh, just bask in the self-righteousness. It's fantastic. I don't want to hear that it's hard. Just make it good. <laughs> I am actually a seething ball of hatred given corporeal form. <laughs> Uh, one thing I did want to call out here, uh, just a little bit, because it, it does bear mentioning, uh, there are there are battles uh, in yes, this game. There's yes, tactical we haven't battles. talked about the battles. This is important. They're, they're really simple. Uh, the, the, you know, and, and most of them I didn't think were, were particularly worth fighting, because like your average skirmish, uh, it's going to be sheer weight of numbers. But it gets a little more interesting again as your armies get bigger, as the number of forces you're putting onto the field uh, gets larger. Here's the thing about Japan. Uh, it's not that big. It's certainly not that broad. And there's a lot of mountains and narrow, narrow trails. And so like converging your forces and getting like, you know, bringing those numbers to bear effectively becomes really interesting. And again, going back to logistics, like those, you know, those long route marches to sort of get all your forces converging at one point in sort of a Gettysburg situation. Well, that's going to eat up more time. Uh, and that opens more of your detachments to finding their way blocked by enemy detachments. Right. Uh, it requires a lot more food. Your your troops might win the battle, but then not have enough food left to sustain a siege. Um, but the twist I really liked is that those little skirmishes, yeah, the tactical battle system doesn't seem that interesting. But if there are enough forces in an area uh, where, where stuff's going down, you can trigger a decisive battle and that ignores basically the rules of the map and brings all the people who are on all these different trails everyone in sort of the theater of operations and slaps them down on one giant battlefield so that you could have uh those those really like incredible you know sixty thousand people to a side uh smackdowns and it's the battles themselves become a little more interesting, I think, in that situation because there's there is a lot more going on. But I think what interests me even more is the fact that um 
I think games sometimes struggle to bring to life the idea of the decisive battle. Because a lot of times if you're doing it right, you're not fighting a decisive battle. You're fighting a lot of small skirmishes and sort of snapping up enemy detachments right and left. That's how you succeed in Total War games. Uh, if things are going well, that's certainly how you try to succeed in a lot of Paradox games. Uh, but here, the game definitely encourages you to stake everything on that big, you know, that, that big uh, throw of the dice because that is a way at one stroke to destroy enemy resistance and break open those roads uh, that you couldn't do if you were just sort of grinding it out in the small battles. And that's that sense of, of drama of large scale is really, as a, as, a, as a customer, very seductive. I mean, that was sort of the pitch of... of um, Supreme Commander, that sort of thing, wasn't it? It's you can have these, you can go from the small skirmishes to these giant epic battles and, 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 and feast upon the, the military wonders that your logistics have wrought. Um, and so I haven't actually triggered the scenario that you're talking about. I haven't actually managed to get it to do that yet, which is quite interesting. So now I have something I want to go and try. Hmm. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, although you have to be careful uh, because... If you forget who your key general is, you might actually get them killed in in the big decisive battle, and then your entire campaign is hosed. Yes, well, that that is just a fact of life. I, I get the feeling that with a lot of these Koei things, um, and actually this sort of historical simulator in general, battle is always kind of a tough one. It's expected of you because, well, people fought. Um one of the romances of the Three Kingdoms games, if you had a military campaign, well, what they did is they basically, they just dropped in the entirety of what was basically the Final Fantasy Tactics combat engine. Because why not? Um, including things like, you know, deploying cannons and building ships to sail across small rivers and having mystical Chinese oracles and so forth. Um, so it seems like there's still that, that thread of experimentation. But does, you know, is the, is the battling element of... Uh, Nobunaga any less sophisticated than, say, the battling element of Crusader Kings. Uh, it, you know, an obvious comparison there. Crusader Kings games for me always seem to be sort of push a bunch of armies together and, and maybe you win and maybe you don't. And, well, you throw oh, something yeah, in the I mean, dungeon anyways. There's, well, not much, there's not much meat in the bone there in terms yeah, Troy, of... Yeah, why, why aren't there why aren't there tactical battles in Paradox games? Shut up, shut up, shut you up. Guys, you guys should get on that. <laughs> oh, it's fun being a game player. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Have, oh, you guys, have you guys ever, has that ever occurred to you guys? No, no one's ever suggested that before. <laughs> this is the first you, time you, anyone said that. Rob, do you feel like this all the time? What is this feeling? Uh, it's, it's, uh, you, oh. you are drunk with power. Uh, oh. and it's pretty much how I, how I roll out of bed every oh, morning. Oh God, I haven't smiled in a long time. My face hurts. <laughs> All those but, muscles. But, but no, I think the paradox, the paradox trade-off is, is that, yeah, uh, because you, you get to have this, the, this large continuously running, uh, like grand strategy game, the battles have to be, okay, all these people in this area, one big battle and, you know, the, the, the dice are rolling in the background and commander abilities will be weighting those dice uh, but but really like you know there you go that's that's You're pretty that's detached the in the thing and it's it's i mean frankly it's it's not nearly as as interesting as court intrigue um whereas i don't i don't necessarily agree with like that that particular romance of the three kingdoms games approach either because you know if i wanted to play tactics games like that i would probably go play final fantasy tactics uh, and it was kind of a shaky implementation of that in that sort of like 
again, koi games, some things are sometimes a little bit rough around the edges. Um, so, I don't know. This is kind of a, a middle ground thing. And you can sort of see it skewing maybe a little more towards um, a pure higher level campaign, or you can see it skewing more towards something a little more um, a little more tactical and sort of fidgety, I guess. But, you know, it's, it's a balance. I don't think the game is really about the combat, which is no. odd. No. Which is uh, odd because, I mean, you know, this is Nobunaga we're talking about, but it's... Well, but Nobunaga's real real accomplishments, they were partly military, but like in, in a lot of great strategy games, right? Like the military is a reflection of the strategic work you've done, right? Like the battle merely confirms your victor victory. This is this is something Bruce goes on a lot about, right? Like how many really great war gameable battles are there in history where both sides have a have a good chance of achieving a decisive outcome. There aren't that many uh, because because by and large somebody's going to win this war, and that usually is refre- reflecting other realities. You know, it doesn't matter how many battles Robert E. Lee wins. Like ultimately, he's won he's one mediocre day away from defeat, and and I think that this that that's kind of what's happening here is the the battles are there, they they, they matter a bit, but ultimately the focus is on, on sort of the 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 table setting that happens before then, right. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, you know, we're, we're running a little short on time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to like, so where, where, where do we stand with this game? Because I, I, I'm of two minds. Like I don't like damning games with, with faint praise, especially ones I've enjoyed as much as I did enjoy Nobunaga. I had a lot of time. I, I had a lot of fun and spent a lot of time playing Nobunaga's ambition. And, uh, that, that time passed quickly and, and pleasurably, but it is one of those games where, uh, you know how you like, again, can be very addictive. You can, you can, you can put a lot of time into a game and, and it all flies past and then you step away from it. And like a half hour later, you're thinking, Wait, what was I really doing there? Like, what was, you know what I mean? And, and I feel like this was one of those games for me where, like, while I was playing it, had a great time. Uh, but it was also a game, it was an experience that started to pale very quickly uh, the, the more I started to sort of pick at it. Again, I think that's, I think that's part of the, the co-experience from this, this particular developer. All of their games are like that. Like there's, you know, you're you're dumped in this this historical situation, which, as you know, somebody who may not be intimately familiar with the history of feudal Japan, not totally sure about. And you do things, and you sort of try your best, and you're immersed in all this wonderful lore and stuff, and you have fun, and you come away, and it's, you know, you feel like it it, it is the experience that it is, right? It's not necessarily. I don't even know if it's trying to be like a a game that is good in the sense that we're optimizing for a high score on Metacritic. You know, it's it's trying to be unabashedly what it is. And I think by and large it succeeds. And I think by and large the sort of people who enjoy Koei games and, and some of the crossover on, on PC obviously now, you know, Paradox games or certain sorts of simulation games, I think they'll I think people will buy it and enjoy it. But I don't think it's for everyone and that's okay. And this is a game, I mean, I'm kind of with you, Rob. This is a game that's, when, when you're in it, it's really, really enjoyable. I don't want to call it, like, I don't want to call it, like, junk food, but it's kind of like a, an old sitcom, you know, that you're comfortable with, and you're playing it, and you're enjoying the middle, but then you realize, you know, this really isn't that good. I mean, it, it's not that it's a bad game. It's like, you know, I could have spent that half hour 
Reading a Domin great work of literature, like Romance I, of the Three I, Kingdoms. I could, have, I could have been playing Dominions 4, right? Well, uh, yes. Have, uh, there, and it's not that this is a... It is a game that is has so much that's appealing about it, but the flaws are... They're not crippling flaws, but that kind of thing that will, you know, nag at you as you're playing. Like, why can't... So much of it is just so good and so evocative that the little things and the trans the too much transparency and the is the ai really doing anything these are the types of it, it, it's it's like empire total war there we go this is empire total war when then you're in your in when you're in the battles and they're colorful battles and you're doing the trade routes and all of the, and it's all the pageantry is great and then you know a few sessions in some questions start to pop up like huh is this trade really doing anything and are these sea battles really important? Wait a minute. The AI hasn't moved its armies, and is it colonizing? Is it doing any of this trade stuff? And there are all of these questions that nag at you. Now, I think this is better than Empire Total War. Yes. Um, but it's the same sort of mental calculus going on in your head. That's, you know, I've invested 10 or 12 hours. I've invested 20 hours, and it's, huh, I'm doing all of these really cool things, but none of these really cool things are happening to me. It's not a cheap game either. No, I mean, this, it's, this is a, it's, $60. It's, yeah, well, given our, our lousy, god-awful Canadian dollar, I mean, it was something like 64 bucks for me. That's not, that, that's, that's a large amount of my gaming dollar. I mean, that buys, like, you know, Undertale for me and, and seven of my nearest and dearest. Yeah. And an infinite number of Dwarf Fortresses. It's true, actually. And, like, two Dominions 4, but, you know, they've always yeah. had their own concept of pricing over there. Um, and again, like, if you want to talk about pricing models, maybe Dominions is a, is a good comparison. The Ill Winter stuff has always been very expensive for, you know, games that are... But they know their audience, and they know that their audience will, will pay that much. This is, a game um, I think, I, this is a game that I do want people to look at, because there is, it does a lot of very interesting... It's a game worthy of study. Whether it's, yes. a game, whether it's a game worthy of play is something else. Is, is a different question. I mean, we could keep on talking about it for another another three hours, very clearly, and we you know, and we can we could, could keep taking it apart and looking at all the interesting things it does. And I, you know, the great thing about the great thing about games like this is that even if at the end of the day they're not sort of capital G good or great or whatever. And I mean, I think it's I think it's good. I don't think it's great, but it's yeah. definitely good. But it has a big capital I interesting, and a lot of ideas yeah. in there that yeah. other people I really hope will will lash onto and and take with them and go and steal. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it is just unabashedly brilliant. Like the tutorial system is 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 probably the best in a game any game I've played in the past three years. It's got you know everything is clearly laid out. Everything has lots of character. It's very easy to dive into for enormously complicated systems, and it's got that huge richness and of the, the the tapestry of history behind it. And there's lots of stuff there that it would be really good if people took those ideas and ran with them, and maybe combined them with a little bit more of sort of the the traditional. But I, what I, I I'm trying to say this without being um, derogatory. Um, how, how this is this is very complicated and hard to phrase. There are sort of certain certain very concrete ideas now. I think about how you design games and how about how you design strategy games in particular. There's sort of very. Mm. We now are starting. You feel to this really one's have, a bit naive of the state of the art. No, I don't feel it's naive. I feel that it's just sort of. Um, it is. There's a, there's a, there's a, it, it is not aware of the best practices. 
No, not even that. It's it's doesn't really. I mean, it, it's just kind of doing its own thing, and it's happy to do its own thing. There's a, there's a thing in music called outsider art, um, and it's this this whole this whole notion that you have these these people who are really not aware of of musical anything, but they decided one day they're going to wake up and they're going to make music anyways. And usually, it's completely different from anything anybody else is doing because it's just operating so outside of that space and usually it's really interesting but maybe it isn't necessarily going to be you know on the top 40 and it's the, it's the same thing here i mean this is a game where it's very sort of far away from how most people would design a strategy game even a historical strategy game i mean it's it's very different i mean it's one thing that we should maybe talk about if we have any time is is the differences between it and, say, Paradox's approach, because that's very illustrative and evocative. Clearly, Crusader Kings 2 and I think the most recent Europa Universalis, they really nailed that blend of complexity and magic and made it really accessible. And maybe if more of those ideas had trickled back, we'd have sort of a better good product. But there's also a lot of interesting there that other, other developers could, should really study and learn from and incorporate those ideas. I want to see more of these Koei games. I want to see yes. another Romance of the Three Kingdoms that looks kind of like... We remember how the game looks, and it looks great. Oh, I think the informa- yeah, we haven't even I think, talked about the graphics. I think it's, the information should be a little bit more... I think it should be, it should be easier to understand a little bit more about the general strategic situation, because it's not always to take easy to get that great, big, broad picture. But you're often you're so often operating in just your close space and where your army should be, it's not a huge deal. Um but I do want to see, you know, it, it is a beautiful looking game, and I want to see another romance of the Three Kingdoms because the last oh, yes, one please. on PC looked also great. It was larger and grander, and there were big cities, and the the, the debates on pillars were always fun. Um, it was a beautiful looking. I think Koi has really does have amazing artists. And yes, I think they can do a clearly. really great strategy game that looks good. So another one was the Three Kingdoms. You know, maybe they want to go back and do Liberty or Death again because I'd love to see a game like that. And that's a, a relatively simple uh, type thing to do. So I do want to see more of these. I'm glad this one was ported over. I think capital I interesting is a good way to put it. Yes, absolutely. And you know, it's it's. That's that's in some ways harder to do than a great game. Yes, yeah, and, and you know, and, and I think certainly the, the like I, I think people like us, people who play a lot of strategy games, people who play a lot of games. Period. I think the more you do that, the the more you start to really enjoy those interesting experiences. Like they 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 mm. tend to be the games I find myself thinking about the most long after the the quote unquote better games of whatever given year it was have completely faded from memory. It's those weird sort of like pseudo successful like experiments that end up staying with me and sort of becoming more of a part of my perspective uh, than a lot of uh, ostensibly ostensibly better uh, works, which is something certainly like from a critical standpoint, like I I struggle with all the time, right? Like I've got my review open here in a tab and I'm still pretty happy with where I came out with it on, on Rock, Paper, Shotgun. But I'm always a little worried, like, you know, for, for a game that I, I had that left me thinking about as much as this game did, uh, for a game that was so thematically rich and flavorful, uh, you know, I, I'm like, did I did I short sell it a little bit because it wasn't checking enough of those conventional boxes uh, that I want checked? And that's something that, like, you know, it, the answer the answer is I don't know. 
right? Like that's a, that's a difficult thing to, to to nail down, but it's certainly one of those those things that nags at you uh, when when you're doing reviews is the fact that on the one hand you feel like well you, you want games to cover these certain bases, but then you you come you you sort of take the long view and you think about well what have I really valued over the course of my gaming lifetime. And there's a weird number of those, like, sixes and sevens, as it were, uh, you know, in, in, on that list uh, when, when more easily recommendable games uh, have faded. Uh, but but where, where I've come out on this one is, is like, I think it is, I think, I think that flavor is really great. It is a gorgeous game, uh, and it, it evokes a lot of its period and, and a lot of the mythology of the era. And I think uh, there's absolutely a lot to like here. Uh, I, I I just feel that you know as a strategy game, there's a lot of things that that I found wanting. There there's a lot of um, not necessarily busy work, but certainly a lot of uh, a lot of ledger reading, a lot of information sorting, without interesting decisions waiting at the end of it and and ultimately that does get that does start to drag you down a little bit and i very much identify with what you said troy about like you know it's sort of that sitcom that appears it's that it's that sitcom it's that sitcom in syndication that appears at a certain time of night and it's like oh it's the four-hour block of that show from the 70s that sounds cool I guess I'll leave it on, and you know, time erodes. I mean, they've just put a, to put a more positive spin on it. I mean, this might not be a game that will review well, but I think it, it's worthy of of serious criticism. Yes, I mean, to, which to, is to, which to, also difficult. to draw the distinction between you know, I don't like drawing a fine a bright line between reviews versus criticism. Yeah, but I think there is a lot in this game worthy of you know, deep deep criticism of you know, design and meaning. And understanding and cultural stuff of, of great value, whether it stands up as a good game or not, uh, is there something you'll play and say, "Oh, I had a lot of fun." You'll have fun playing it, but you know it does get a lot of a lot of the things we expect in games wrong, like you know AI, like busy work, uh, like. But it gets so much right and so much right in interesting ways, like we talked about the tutorial training and the way it educates you and this decisive battle thing and its understanding of what does, what does transparency mean in a strategy game? I mean, this is really a, a good question. And this I think is a good object for this. So, um, and, I, I mean, go ahead. As a developer, as I said, tying this back to thing I said at the start of this podcast, uh, I can't play, I don't play good games anymore because I mean, good is relatively easy to achieve if you, especially if you have enough money, but I will always make time for interesting games. And that's really where it, it got me is again, it's just, it's just, it's just so interesting and you can, you know, has, it gets things right in ways that you didn't even know it was possible to get them right before. And gets them yeah, wrong. And, and gets things wrong in, in the, the things that gets wrong are predictable things. Things lots yes. of games yeah. get wrong. Yeah. Yeah, so. AI not being active enough is boy. That is that is pretty much every second strategy game ever made. Uh, so so yeah, I I would say you know this is recommended in that like this is absolutely worth playing. Like at some point, like yeah, give, give this one a shot. And if this sounds interesting to you, like you know, don't sleep on it. And if 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 the the pri- if you balk at the price because this is priced a little steeply for the standards we've come to expect on Steam, it's it's sort of a full console game price. Um, you know, put it on the wish list and and get to it. Uh, you know, on that on that rainy day. Uh, but you know, if you're from a country with a with a robust virile uh, currency, uh, you know, just just have at it. 
How many of those are there? <laughs> How many real currencies do you know? Uh, I get I get paid in British pounds a lot. And uh-huh. That seems that's pretty well, cool. That's very exciting, and um, yeah, we're just we're just very poor up here now. We're we're very very poor. Mm, well, you know, as soon as as soon as the fur industry re- rebounds, uh, it's 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 all going to come back. The codfish uh, will be back any day now. <laughs> so that does it for Nobunaga's ambitions, sphere of influence. Uh, it is currently sixty dollars on Steam, uh, so take that into account. Uh, again, I highly recommend wish listing it for for that rainy day when you're in the mood for something uh, truly capital I interesting. Uh, but that will do it for this week's episode of Three Moves Ahead, which is produced by Michael Hermes and hosted by the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show or discuss this episode with our community by visiting our website at threemovesahead.net. Uh, Nicholas, not to put you on the spot, but you are also working on a capital I interesting game right now. Absolutely. Uh, last I saw, you were posting patch notes in verse, so I assume development is completely off the rails. Uh, how how's that going? Uh, when can people expect a a launch version of Clockwork Empires? Yeah, you're putting me on the spot here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I sort of I sort of, when I when I said I would do this podcast, I was originally thinking, well, I'm not going to talk about Clockwork Empires because it's kind of crass uh, in a way. I want to talk about you know. It's it's nice to be a not a developer for a while and to, to talk about something as a, as a player. Um, but since you asked, um, we are continuing through uh, early access. We started putting the word alpha in the title recently, which I think means some sort of vague measure of progress from pre-alpha and earliest access and other ridiculous words that we came up with in order to, um, you know, in order to sufficiently denigrate ourselves in the eyes of the of the buying public. Uh, we've been on Steam for just over a year now. Um, we are currently on Alpha 43. Uh, Alpha 43B is in our experimental stream, which we update about once a week. That uh, just came, the most recent one of those just came out about three hours ago. So as soon as I'm done recording the podcast, I'm going to go and actually check our forums and probably note that everything exploded. Um, I'm, I'm very happy with how things are going over here. We're, you know, we're making good progress. We're getting good feedback. We have people being appreciative um life is life is just grand but no you will not pin me down on any sort of ship date uh david and daniel will basically be- murder me and leave my corpse for the ravens to feast well, uh, on that was that was my plot I would, actually I, would, I was i was basically trying to set you up uh like like a, like um joe pesci's character in goodfellas uh, uh, I'd, have, I'd have to commit seppuku in a burning temple um, <laughs> oh no don't let don't let gramps do that again <laughs> uh, all right uh so so that's the current state of play with Clockwork Empires. Uh, we'd also appreciate it if listeners would rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, you can follow Three Moves Ahead on Twitter, where we are at 3MA. Uh, you should also cruise over to idlethumbs.net, home of the Idle Thumbs Network, to check out the rest of the great shows we do there. Uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. Good night, all. Good night.